thank you so much for doing this again um i would introduce you again sir but things get glorious every time right every time i'm here i'm so so excited to talk about things and this one i've been preparing for for quite a bit i'd mentioned in the last podcast too and part of the reason is one very interesting inflection point in my history was this small lecture i attended once in the faridabad rss shakha my father and in fact my father's business partner my uncle they probably were allowed the education and the future because they were funded by rss shakha schools back in the day right they were very poor families and so my family has always been involved and my father once took me to a lecture turns out in hindsight that this was by mr ram madhav i had no idea i had no context on any of this i was maybe 15 16 and the entire lecture was about how china employs sun tzu's art of war in its foreign policy internal policy and why we must look inwards for inspiration and this is like 15 20 like 15 years ago i think not 20 years ago but 15 years ago so a significant time ago where the current political context or the current political discourse was not this prominent and so that made me wonder why can we not do that with our thinkers and one name strikes in particular which is chanakya kautilya vishnugupt and the several names that sort of follow for a man like a man of his stature so what i wanted to do through this podcast is figure out if you were to place chanakya in in modern times if you were to think of a chanakya niti for today how would that happen is that a fair proposal sir for the conversation yeah why not yeah. um first of all uh, thank you for having me back on your show um yes um vishnugupt chanakya uh, also known as kautilya was a seminal character in our history right. uh, he was a philosopher but very importantly he was also an empire builder he was one of the two founders of the mauryan empire right. our first uh, really big empire uh, uh, in india um and uh, he also has left behind to us a manual on governance called the arthashastra which is very well known hmm. uh which is uh, something that he wrote when he was probably a professor of political economy in takshashila university Hmm. and um, then later on perhaps edited it when he became actually uh, became the uh, uh, prime minister of the mauryan empire hmm. uh, under uh, chandragupta maurya so so before we begin yes. let me just get the historical situation straight because i know for a fact he was born to a brahmin family and then somebody said that he is going to be very powerful and stuff like that but i didn't know he was a professor at takshila so give me a little bit of historical context on the so family. there are many legends about him right so it's a long time ago <laughs> so uh So there are uh, many legends that is he was his father Chanak and hence Chanakya was a minister in the Nanda Empire and then he was uh, you know removed from his post and they were exiled and so on there are many legends uh, not all of them are consistent we do know however that at some point in time and this from here on it becomes a little more certain he turned up essentially at the time of Alexander's invasion as a professor in takshashila mm-hmm. of political economy he was quite a famous person at that time now at the time of alexander's invasion what happens is that alexander uh, makes uh, an ally out of ambi who was the ruler of takshashila now there is however opposition to this led primarily by the intellectuals uh, and many of them are then hanged mm-hmm. in that milieu uh, um kautilya uh, or Chanakya, if you prefer, runs away from there and goes all the way to Magadh to ask for help from the Nanda king. Now, now the Nanda king basically insults him and throws him out of the sabha. So he then sort of heads back to uh, Takshashila, 
Now, there are again many legends about this, but at some point in time, he uh, takes under his wing a, a, a boy from a relatively poor background. Uh, there are again many legends who this person was. Some say he was just a poor kid he found along the way. Some people say he was an illegitimate son of the, of the Nanda king. All kinds of rumors are there. But anyway, right. the net result is that a young boy called Chandragupta Maurya under his tutelage. And he takes this boy back to Takshashila, by which point um, Alexander has come and he's gone. Okay. And northwest of India is under some, uh, the Greeks at mm. this point. Mm. He then, some more years pass, he educates this young boy to become the ideal ruler. It is possibly also around about that time when he puts together his thoughts on how a new empire could be put together. And then with the support of hill uh, tribes. Uh, tribes, which are probably from Himachal, we're just guessing here. Right. Uh, he then finally manages to uh, essentially evict um, the Nandas from uh, from the plains and ultimately from Magad. And then he creates a somewhat bigger empire and attacks the Greeks and evicts them from northwest of India and then lays the foundation therefore, thereafter of what we know as the Mauryan Empire. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> this is the rough sketch right, right, of right, right. what we know about this person. Fair. But it is important that there are many legends about him, huh. not just in his own time. And of course, the book that he's left behind, the, the, the uh, Arthashastra. But subsequent centuries, you keep having mention of this person right. called Vishnugupt, Vishnugupt Kautil, uh, uh, Chanakya or Kautilya, who was a great philosopher, uh, guru of uh, Chandragupta and so on. So even in the Gupta Empire, hmm. you have a great uh, philosopher, thinker of that time called Kamandak. Kamandak. So Kamandak. Right. Kamandak in his Niti Sara, right in the beginning, starts with salutations to Chanakya huh. of, of Vishnugupta, who had set up this great empire. So, so hundreds of years later, they are still thinking about this great person. And they, you know, the Guptas had plays, for example, uh, Mudra Rakshas. Uh, in which, uh, the, in the play, uh, there is a description of all the uh, intriguing that happened when Chanakya and uh, um, Chandragupta were evicting the Nandas. Uh, Nandas. Hmm. And they had a very loyal chief minister. Under the, uh, under the Nandas called Rak, uh, Rakshasa. Achha. And how the, you know, the two of them, they intrigue against each other and ultimately Chanakya wins. Huh. So, you know, the, the Guptas are very fascinated with the Mauryas and they were particularly fascinated with Chanakya and Chandragupta. After all, in the, in the Guptas, remember, there are at least three emperors named after Chandragupta. Chandragupta. So right. it was a common name. Yes. Similarly, you can see Kamandak names Vishnugupta as one of the, you know, the great scholars of the past. So there's this great fascination with the, with the, 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 the Mauryas, with the Gupta empires, right. 600 years later. Right. So when Samudra Gupta wants to write his prashasti about his own conquests in the south and west and so on, where does he go? He finds a Ashokan pillar, which is now in... Uh, Kutub. Uh, is that no, the no, no, it's not the one in Kutub. Uh -huh. This is the one in uh, Prayag. Okay. Uh, uh, and on that column, he in the, where Ashoka's inscriptions are, in the same column, uh, Samadra Gupta leaves his inscription. inscription. Why? Because he is trying to signal continuity. It's not like he was also a great empire. He could have also got hold of a slab of uh, stone. It's not right. like he was, running, yeah. uh, he was lacking stone. So why does he go there? Because again, this continuity that is being uh, 
done. Right. And just to get it historically accurate, I think there's a significant sort of several hundred year difference between the Gupta Empire, which is in the future, and the Mauryan Empire, which is in the past. Yes, Mauryan Empire is 300 uh, BC, Mm -hmm. uh, thereabouts. And uh, you are talking about the Gupta Empire in 300 to 500 AD. AD. So there's a good 600. Which is a long time, because if I look, reflect right now, that's like the 1200s for now, right? In context. No, 600 back, so 1400. Yeah, 1400. But my, my point is that there... And we know this, right? Because at least my history book taught me. And my history book also confused Mm. me between the Mauryan and the Gupta Empire, but that's a separate issue. There was something unique about the Mauryan Empire. It was known as a great empire. And although the word great is whatever, but like I'm trying to understand what is so special about the Mauryan Empire. Well, it's the first historical empire for which we have more, a lot of evidence, archaeological, textual, and so on. So... There may have been empires before. Even, for example, the Namdas also had an empire. Not as large, but it mm. was an empire. But it's very, very sketchy. Mm. So, what we know about it actually comes from their enemies who replaced them, the Mauryas. Right, okay. Uh, so, uh, there may have been... There are legends about, uh, from our epics, for example, that you know there may have been great kings. Uh, you know, uh, Raja Bharat mm-hmm. may have conquered in uh, Jambu, Dvipa, and so on. But... Other than mentioned in the text, I cannot say anything very definitive about it. But with the Mauryas, what happens, they are the first proper empire for which we definitely know. Hmm. And there are, um, you know, there's Megasthenes who comes, for example. Right. So there is ex- external uh, validation. validation and evidence for it. So we know definitely these guys existed. Uh, they had a bunch of em- emperors. We have some description of the empire. We have the Arthashastra, which gives some flavor of how that empire May have, may have been run. Um, I mean, it, it, this is a manual, so I'm not saying that the actual empire may not have run exactly like this. But nevertheless, uh, it provides some uh, flavor of the kind of, you know, hmm. kind of thinking hmm. that uh, the prime minister of that state had. Right. And so this oft-seen nostalgia towards the golden age of India, is that historically rightfully placed around this time? Is it like... If I were to look back at the modern empire, is that part of the golden age of India? Was it like I, very rich? I were very careful about using the word golden age right. because um, different parts of India flourished at different points for different reasons. Mm. So India has a long history with many golden ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can say the Harappan period was also a sort of golden age. Uh, you had this period under the Mauryas that, um, you know, different places they have had. For example, Agra's golden age was under the Mughals. Right, right, right. Uh, Southern India had a golden age under Krishna Devaraya and, uh, and the um, Vijayanagar Empire. Right. Uh, Bengal may have had a golden age under the Palas and the Sens and so on and so forth. So we uh-huh. have to be a little careful about the use of this word golden age. Right. Um, because it gives the impression that... Uh, there was one. There was one golden age. And so we have, we have a long cyclical history uh, with all kinds of things happening at different points in time. Hmm. And is this empire particularly rich? Is the modern empire... Is there something to look at in the modern empire? That well, certainly up? it was very big. Okay. So, yes. uh, it was... Um, uh, yeah, it, it was much bigger than, for example, the Republic of India. Oh, right. Yes. So, you have to remember that other than the very tip of southern India, everything else in in, in the subcontinent, not just India, but what is now Pakistan, Bangladesh, Afghanistan... Even parts of eastern uh, Iran mm. were part of this empire. It was a massive empire. Ooh. So it was significantly bigger than modern India. And an empire of that size uh, w- and remained in play for three generations. Of course, with Ashoka, it, 
the end of his uh, 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 life. life it had already begun to fall apart but still for three generations this rather massive empire uh, held together the size of a modern country and more right yes like much bigger than india it would yeah. have it, it would have been the biggest empire on the planet at at, at its height fair and uh, it you know uh, alexander's empire for example didn't uh, last at all because he conquered it and then on his way back he died right so his empire was almost immediately carved up between his generals so the alexandrian empire didn't exist for it existed for just a few years and wasn't properly administered as such hmm. as hmm. a as as a, as a single unit hmm. uh, so and the, his contemporaries in in china as well that was the time that china a little bit lit just a little bit later china had its first empire as well hmm. uh, it was smaller hmm. in fact uh, you know modern china is much much bigger than the first empire of china whereas modern india is smaller than the first empire of very india. interesting and i would think this would be my guess given what i have understood or what i've read a little bit right that a great degree of this huge empire that came to be came from the smarts of one man right maybe it's a maybe it's a over two men two men yeah so him and chandragupt both yes, they're yes. co-founders of sorts they are co-founders i think um, you know chandragupta was certainly must have been a remarkable man hmm uh, because not only i mean he was empire and he he must have been a, he must have been the military brains the inspirational figure right um i mean he his guru may have been chanakya and may have provided him the intellectual framework but you know a great empire requires personality character inspiration genius leadership military military leadership all of those things probably came from chandragupta uh, maurya so it was a it was a it is almost certainly i mean we don't know very much exactly hmm. but it was almost certainly a very close relationship between the two right and wasn't chanakya also a prime minister for bindusara we don't know all these details acha 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 uh, do remember that chanakya was significantly older than uh, chandragupta chandragupta so he may have carried on for a little while into bindusara but certainly would not for much longer theek hai okay so now that i have a historical account and i understand sort of the length and breadth of what he'd managed to establish my question is what is the right way to look at chanakya is he a political philosopher which is probably what an arthashastra represents is he a king maker what is now commonly termed as a power broker of sorts like how, how do i place chanakya uh, in my mind so obviously if, uh, even in tradition his different aspects have different names so when we uh, talk of him as a philosopher usually the word kautilya is used okay therefore it's called kautilya's arthashastra not chanakya's arthashastra usual usage mm-hmm. and chanakya or vishnugupta chanakya is used for him as an administrator and empire builder mm. so he was an empire builder he was also an administrator uh, so he was a practitioner and a philosopher mm. so the arthashastra is a document of his philosophy which is of course was informed by the fact that he was a practitioner and you can clearly see that i mean he has very specific injunctions about you know what should the traffic rules be and the fines should be what interest rate should be so this is not just a guy writing general principles mm. he then here are the principles and here is what the rules should be so he's quite clear in that very uh, specific very specific so it, this is very different by the way from most other books in fact for hundreds of years afterwards there are uh, the, even his followers of later times like uh, kamandak etc are not as specific hmm. he is very specific he is very specific about how a town should be built what is the width of the road 
all these kinds of specifications he gives i mean what interest rate should be pay, uh, given if a uh, 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 person takes a loan and he renege what is the uh, procedure for insolvency and bankruptcy <laughs> it's in the same book it's in the same book here it is it's a it's a thick book thick it's, book it's a thick book uh, this is um, a translation by vachaspati uh, uh, garola mm-hmm. uh, um, but uh, yeah so this is a is a pretty thick uh, document this is the english version of it right. although this is edited down but this is the commonly used one by ranganathan but uh-huh. you, can, you can have other versions of it as well but point is it's a thick book and it it and it in in it gets into real details about how a military camp should be set up uh, what are the principles for um, engaging in uh, foreign policy uh-huh. for example he has the mandala theory okay so the mandala theory is you if you you can think of yourself as a state mm-hmm. as a kingdom and then you have kingdoms with whom you have borders mm-hmm. so one of the his points he makes is that those with whom you share borders are very likely to be your enemies mm-hmm. and but that principle also applies to them on the other side right so very often your highest likelihood of your ally is going to be the kingdom on the other side of him Hmm. you know things like that so yeah the, the enemy of your enemy is a enemy friend enemy of your yeah, friend right. so there are all these principles he has uh, hmm. there so similarly he has all these he he talks about the various kinds of knowledge you need to run an empire hmm. uh, the, what are the principles of governance so the book arthashastra should be called it's a, it's a treatise on governance uh, and prosperity okay and so he has in here very specifically uh, talks about what are the areas of knowledge you need to know into run an empire Hmm. And in this sense it is a much wider book than Machiavelli's Prince which is a very narrow book about doing court politics in a small state in northern Italy. in Italy. Yes. It's trivial almost compared to the thinking level of Cortelia. I I was going to get into that because yeah. very often you know the western mind and probably the western sort of view on this situation is that Chanakya is some kind of an equivalent to Machiavelli. and it seems like the prince which is largely this political psychology document of like how do you manage to ascend to power and this is mostly more... about court intrigue yes right this is way more specific oh yeah it's a much more sophisticated document mm. i mean does have something about court intrigue right. and spies and so on but frankly it that is a very small part of it i mean it also has urban design uh, discussion hmm. it has a discussion on ju- how to deliver justice it has discussion how to regulate uh sort of uh, bad sectors vice sectors you know what to do about alcohol and oh i see and how to regulate prostitution huh. all kinds of specific very specific what are the rights and how you know uh, what are the limitations how do you manage a forest all of this is given very clear uh, clearly written out here are the principles here are how to apply those principles i wonder why could we not call it to some degree akin to a constitution like how is it different from a constitution no it's not a constitution because it's more like a manual okay uh, a constitution would be slightly different because it would then uh, have high level principles about how the uh, how to um, further create manuals uh, not just that it uh-huh. would also talk about how the king uh, should be elected what are the principles it doesn't get into that right it assumes the existence of a state okay and then it talks about uh, the existence of a uh, of and how that state should be governed okay. once it is in existence hmm. so i i think it's better thought of as a governance manual okay let me ask you uh, a somewhat animated question um, and so treat it like an animated question add your sincerity to it imagine 
I were to place Chanakya today in India, a rising economy, um, without question, much better than it has ever been in history. Almost like la- the last time we discussed, at the cusp of something great happening, right? And with all of these raw material in place, with a stable population in place, what would Chanakya do first, or what would be the highest point of leverage from a Chanakyan point of view in present-day policy or judiciary or or X Y Z A B C? Like, how would Chanakya approach present-day? So you'll have to really let me lay out how Chanakya thought about the role of the state. Let's go. So okay, so first of all, uh, you have to understand that Chanakya is not functioning in a vacuum. Hmm. Okay, so by the time Chanakya appears on the scene, there is a well-established learning institutions like. Uh, Takshashila, where he teaches. Um, and there already exist pre-existing theories of uh, governance and so on. And right. even you see that in the epics, for example, you have uh, discussions about it. Um, so what is the principle uh, or what is what is the basis of thinking about uh, the state in, in Indian philosophy? Well, the main a very important concept is that of Matsyanyaya. Hmm. So what is Matsyanyaya? Matsyanyaya is the law of the fish. Right. The large fish eats the small, small fish. fish. So this is the basic idea of Jungle Raj. Now, how do you avoid Jungle Raj? That is why the state exists, to avoid Jungle Raj. So there are different theories on how to avoid Jungle Raj. So pre-existing already, there were philosophers of the school of Brihaspati hmm. and there was the school of Shukra. They were somewhat different philosophers. These are these are also authors of the past. They're authors of the past. We we have some very corrupt, highly corrupted documents of those philosophies still in existence. But frankly, you can't make out what exactly is going on. Uh, so we, we don't really know exactly what they say, except from what Chanakya says. Chanakya says about them. Right. Anyway, now Chanakya says that in order for governance, you need basically to learn four areas of knowledge. Okay. So. The first area of knowledge that you need is Dandaniti. Hmm. Okay, this is rule of law and hmm. enforcement of that law, justice, that kind of thing. Hmm. There's another area called Varta. Varta is economic policy. Hmm. Okay. Third area of knowledge, you need an economic philosophy. So today, for example, with capitalism, socialism, welfareism, etc., you need some philosophy to anchor your uh, policies. And third uh, and fourth area of knowledge is you have to be co- cognizant of the uh, cultural context. He calls them three. Three literally means the three Vedas, but he means it in the more general context of what is the cultural context. Okay? Mm. Now he tells us about different schools of thought. So he tells us that Shukra, uh, the school of Shukra, is very much legalist. Okay. So their view is if you want governance, if you want to avoid Matsyanyaya, you have to set up the rules. And then you have to have a system of administering the rules. That is the main thing that the state is there to do. Hmm. Then there is the school of Brihaspati. Brihaspati agrees that rule of law, all of this is important. But he says you also need economic policy. And what is the difference between economic policy and... So, for example, in rule of law, I would just have a bunch of laws. I would have Supreme Court and the government would come up with a bunch of laws and Supreme Court would enforce it. But you won't have economic policy. You won't have, for example, the PLI scheme or various schemes that we have for promoting industry. Interest rate, special economic zones. Yeah, all all of that that kind of thing. Uh, Shukra would say, no, no, no. So no nudges. No nudges or even interventions or policies. 
you just create a law and it's a once you have the law it's like almost you step back and so is is subsidy or like subsidizing a part of varta in that case yes it's subsidy is via varta okay okay or economic or ease of doing business for example right uh, all of this would be varta and then the uh, nyay samiti or the crpc they will be all law they will be all dandaniti that would be that's dandaniti right, yes right 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 so shukra would be very suspicious of any kind of interventionism or any economic policy at all okay is so that once you created the law you know you have a law of contract i have a contract with you we whatever happens happens you know if the government comes and says that no no i am going to give you a, a pli scheme for helping you to expand your business uh, uh, shukra would say no no bad idea but brihaspati would say no good idea good idea okay fair now there is the school of manu okay manu says that yes you need to have the wider context you need some philosophy on the way but he manu by the way can be we don't know exactly which manu because manu remember is a title of a law giver okay so there have been many manus in history so the manu smriti that people talk about is of one manu okay so today uh, the law giver is manu so hmm. if you if, uh, uh, it's like judge it's like justice yeah kind so of yeah. like yeah, justice so and so yeah so some manu huh. or the school of manu he doesn't tell you which manu they are of the view that no you need some other philosophical framework and manu thinks that the philosophical framework should largely come from the cultural context okay then finally you have Cortelia. the culture sorry the cultural context being three just to be three. specific yeah he okay. doesn't separate the two oh, okay, okay as far as he's concerned anivekshi and three the same thing same thing then comes cortelia and he says no no you need law you need economic policy you need a philosophy and you separately need to understand the cultural context in which all of this is going to play out hmm so this is how he thinks about it hmm. now having placed this on the front table table yes. now let's get into what does cortelia think the role of the state is hmm. so one of the things that he keeps talking about saying that the the king must be restrained in his uh, in how he um, uh, interacts with the economy people etc so he likes to limit the state hmm. okay and so what chanakya argues for is a strong but limited state hmm. in which the state has the following role it has a role in internal and external security mm-hmm. it has a role in enforcing contracts and justice which is the dandaniti part uh, regulating industry mm-hmm. providing infrastructure uh, also providing safety nets during national disasters so disaster management and relief so these are the kinds of things uh, or or uh, issuance of currency monetary policy these are the kinds of things that chanakya thinks is uh, the role of the state he is however extremely suspicious of bureaucrats okay bureaucrats being the su- gentlemen su- like yourself yeah right he is very very suspicious yeah so he says that look we need a bureaucracy we need officials to run do all these state things right but he is extremely suspicious of them hmm in fact you know throughout the thing there are a lot of things about spies right and very often people t- tend to take this business of spies as if in the machiavellian sense of court intrigue no hmm Cortelia spies are mostly employed against officials his bureaucrats his bureaucrats because he suspects them all the time he basically states that just like it is impossible to tell how much water a fish is drinking when it's in the water it is impossible to know how much an official is skimming of money from official funds so he treats that as a given huh is given these guys priority. are thugs ha, ha. now i need these people to do these things 
right but i need to limit these fellows because if i may use them to do too many things they will begin to basically drink too much water drink too much water right so he then does something interesting he then therefore everywhere he makes sure that you know the the the, the state does not extend to doing anything so he is not a welfareist for example hmm. so if you did too many welfare schemes cortelia would take the view that this would overextend the state and all this extra money you think you are spending on the poor and all of this all get so okay once in a while when there is a national disaster you have to help the people you do it you build infrastructure for them but by and large you limit these uh, the bureaucrats they are extremely suspicious uh, bunch fellows right yeah hmm. so this is his view of what the state the, uh, should do mm-hmm. so a strong but limited state hmm. ha huh. so i want to hear distinguish between libertarians mm-hmm. from the western sense who who want a very minimal weak state mm. this is not what cortelia is about cortelia wants a strong but limited state so okay the things that the state does he has no sense of humor okay okay what does that mean he has no sense Me- of means humor means there are certain things he thinks the state should do and like for internal is, security right he has no sense of humor about it uh, okay so he is not a libertarian or minimal state guy right right he just says there are some things that you the state will do and this is what it will do and i have no sense of humor in this outside of it jo bhi hai mm-hmm. uh, for example he is not in favor of prohibition for example okay so no ban on alcohol no ba- no he, he will regulate it okay. but will not ban it so he usually thinks would think that over extending the state is a bad you you regulate those things so he has lots of regulations of trade of all kinds of things Hmm. Hmm. But he has no bans per se. He doesn't like bans. He seems very skeptical of corruption because prohibition yeah, yeah, leads to. Yes. So in fact, this is an interesting thing uh, in terms of political philosophy. Right. See, the limits on the state in the Western conception comes from ideas of um, uh, from the idea of inalienable rights of individuals. Of individuals. Right. Okay. That's where the roots of uh, Western uh, li- uh, ideas of limiting the state. Right. The Indian idea of limiting the state. comes from the other side from the idea that if you allow officials too much power they will misuse it so it is that the institution is too corrupt in its large form versus that the individual has inalienable yeah, rights yeah it may lead you to similar outcomes right 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 but i'm just telling you where cortelia would have come to it right now coming to your point about what would cortelia do, do. if he came today right if he turned up today i think he would be uh, he would like many of our policies he would be a little skeptical about some of our um, antodaya type schemes which we help the very poor etc he would think of that as being unnecessary hmm. he would say that you run the country well it will grow and solve the problem so he, that is the view probably he would take so he wouldn't approve of some of our uh, direct benefit transfer type of things i don't think he would uh-huh. but i think that would be a minor issue compared to the way we run our judiciary i think that he would be furious we've gotten to this point the last time to tell me more ha huh? yeah so he would he would say that look you're doing all these other welfare stuff whereas the main purpose of the state is to deliver justice hmm. you aren't able to do this you do all the other stuff later on get the judiciary to work hmm. yeah. the rule of law to the actually rule of work law, as far as he's concerned the rule of law is the problem he said you want to help the poor well the poor Uh, um uh, in matsya the big fish are always eating the small fish if you really care for the poor you have to get the ju- judicial system to work right he would that is his view of how to help the poor so he would diagnose that the process is the punishment when it comes to the law yes he would say look 
how is this um, um, you know um, justice you have to have a just system the delivery of justice is important uh, all this other welfare stuff you are doing is actually you are overcompensation of you are you are compensating for your inefficiency in doing something that a state basically should do he would have no sense of humor about uh, law and order problems for example right so he was very much you know dandaniti law has to be imposed justice has to be done the infrastructure has to be good i mean mm. he talks a lot about highways have to be there so he was, so he would have approved definitely of our highway building our airports right so those kinds of things he would have approved of mm. but he would definitely been very skeptical about our delivery of justice right let me ask you a, a somewhat tricky question because i put you in an animated position first but when you said this about um, the rule of law and say the issue with delivering justice which honestly is the issue because i have no social security net no matter how wealthy or influential i am because the minute things go wrong the courts will take 25 years or 8 years or 12 months to even begin delivering justice right and that seems to be a very reasonable issue so cortelia would have been furious about this right but are you is that a real concern that you share with cortelia yes i share with that at all absolutely if i have to uh i mean i definitely would argue that the single biggest constraint to india's current economic expansion is now the enforcement of contracts you've got 47 million cases stuck in our legal system what on earth uh, are we talking about this is in my view the, the one big problem uh, of uh, so the highest point of leverage yes yeah, so i i would totally agree with cortelia on his uh, views on this and how does one go about solving it like I'm sorry this is a little off track again and maybe this is No we we need to do a lot of things I mean uh, th- this cannot be done by the government I mean ultimately the judiciary has to really stand up It's a separate it. institution yeah, It's a separate institution yes the government has to do it but ultimately the judiciary has to do it itself Right whether it's the appointment of judges the infrastructure the procedures the mm. medieval so way in which you know uh, the entire system works it's just astounding mm-hmm. you know the long holidays it goes on i mean you've got to be kidding the me. loss of paperwork yeah, the paperwork uh, gets lost sometimes no no so all of this is uh, inexcusable and cortelia would have been absolutely furious about it okay one of the modern problems that plagues india or is often referred to as plaguing india by colloquial people like myself you know people who are not as educated on the problems as yourself is that one we have a very big population almost at an unmanageable scale and two that there is so many areas of differentiation we are different on caste creed race gender like there's so much heterogeneity or, or heterogeneity in our population that it becomes sort of unmanageable from a policy or from a bureaucratic or from a government sort of um, standpoint how do you think does a cortelian approach to that work to managing such a huge country so obviously he was managing a massive country too mm-hmm. uh, of course the problem is the cortelian's arthashastra uh, is scale agnostic and may mostly have been written before he became running uh, a government okay uh, so we don't really know what if his views changed after running the mauryan empire and mm. setting it up and running it uh, but anyway the fact of the matter is the arthashastra does not give us a clear view on this he does mention some things about uh, varna system etc but in very vague general terms this is not really important to him okay. at all so he is talking more in terms of rule of law rules of taxation those kinds of things and he's treating subjects as the same like more or less a, yes although he you know more, there is some mention of varna system in there it's not important to it but it does there are some 
areas where he does uh, mention it and also and there's has different has differential rules also for certain kinds of uh, activities but it is not central to his um, thesis at thesis all thesis at all okay this is quite different from say kamanda who hmm. comes 600 years later in the uh, in the in the gupta empire and there it becomes a much more important part of the conversation so it grows in importance over the next 600 number years number one also interesting is that when in the cycle these two people wrote mm-hmm. so kamandak is writing at the time when the gupta empire already existed for a couple of generations already so kamandak for example has this preference for well born uh, officials hmm. okay so he has this preference why of, of old money for like old, old money. money officials right whereas uh, um, kautilya doesn't give a damn he's because he's first generation himself yes himself right. and his his the king he is installed on the throne is also first, first generation. generation so there is there is all these other things you have got to be uh, very aware of that they are at different points in you know uh, in in the cycle so similarly um, caste has also become a more important part of the conversation by the time kamandak appears on the scene and uh-huh. so on how about religion because i think jainism and buddhism is very much around by the time chanakya yes yes but they are not uh, he is not particularly interested in uh, religion as such he may have been in personal life we don't know right uh, but he and you can see he mentions temples and and stuff like that along the way but it's not something he directly alludes to hmm. as such i mean he gives examples here and there where you can i mean clearly derive from uh, uh, sanatan mm-hmm. uh, lineage of thought mm-hmm. uh, and so he he but he he's not really delving into uh, hindu philosophy or any kind of philosophy as such right yeah i mean right. he he almost assumes the existence of a vedic trai based right. system hmm. uh, but he doesn't get involved in really getting into the details of it interesting hmm. interesting i i have one last question about religion and um so my assumption is that the modern categorical differentiation between jainism buddhism and hinduism is 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 probably much more sort of recent than as ancient as as this might be right like the no, the, no, no so no. you're absolutely right the differentiation between all of these things is actually an entirely modern and largely abrahamic idea mm-hmm. because in abrahamic uh, construction of faiths you have clear demarcations mm-hmm. uh, in the world of uh, kautilya these things may not have been meaningful way of thinking about it mm. there was a general uh, dharma karma dharma karma kind of uh, framework for court rituals for example the mauryans used to use vedic rituals mm. um but it doesn't mean that uh, you know individuals had different ideas of things for example at least the jains claim uh, that uh, chandragupta towards the end of his life became a jain okay the jains claim it right 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 whether it's true or not who knows uh, his son uh, bindusara uh, bindusara was probably belonged to a sect called the jivikas okay his son ashoka ashoka by the way his, his different sons seem to have had different interests uh, but ashoka seem to have had a uh, preference for buddhism hmm. and then you have dasharath who uh, ashoka son ashoka son who seem to have gone back to being an ajivika and then one of his sons who went off to kashmir who was a, a shaiva hmm. so there seems to be quite um, a mix a mix of things and that seems to have been by and large the way things were uh, in pre-modern uh, hinduism hmm. even today you will see you know you go to um, uh, you know golden temple you find lots of sikhs hindus lots of hindus go there to worship right, right. Uh, similarly you go to uh, 
uh, Thailand they worship Buddha but you go to a Thai uh, to this temple right. you will find Ganesh you will find Vedic Brahma yeah. Vedic rituals uh, same thing happens in Japan uh, as well so uh-huh. there is a lot of mix and match the demarcation between dharmic religions has never been that clear clear mm-hmm. and in fact may not even be meaningful right fair okay mm-hmm. one more area of importance that sort of has become prominent in in the last 5 7 years has been foreign policy and how we deal with sort of our neighbors and how we deal with um external threats let's just put it like that right how would cotelia conceptualize foreign policy or you know how we deal with our neighbors is there is there something specific he says so i told you about the mandala theory that is one of the theories and he, in that he says that you know your main large uh, countries with whom you share your borders are likeliest to be your uh, which is true for us enemies, which is sort of true for us <laughs> literally as well. so uh, yeah so your rivals the guys you want to uh, keep track of are the countries with which you share your borders therefore yeah. your natural allies per the mandala theory would be the people who are on the other side of it right. so today it would be on one side it would be japan uh-huh, on the japan. other side it would be afghanistan iran right tajikistan right. you know things like that right. so i mean obviously it's not a hard and fast rule i'm just giving you how that schema would have worked in his and at this point borders have been separated so like if china and india are in friction america who's obviously also in friction with china sort of yeah, becomes so an he ally. Would, he, yeah so it needn't be literally the literal border land yeah. border it may be in terms of conflict uh, of whatever conflict sort. of some sort yeah. the other side of whatever you are in conflict with right. so your enemy's enemy being your likeliest friend, friend mm-hmm. is a part of the mandala uh, way of thinking hmm. Hmm. so uh, so you have to remember that cotelia is essentially a realist Hmm. So much of what he says is basically practical uh, rule of uh, thinking. So, for example, even on taxation, he states that you know he gives these very interesting analogies. He says the way you tax must be in the way a honey bee collects uh, pollen from a flower. Hmm. So without destroying the destroying, flower, yeah, you collect what you need to, but don't the the flower itself now should not be destroyed. That's so very so so analogy. there are many things in Cotelia where he lays out these principles. Uh-huh. and then having laid out the principle which many of these principles are still valid right and then uh, he then for his own times he will then tell you okay this rate of taxation is good for this 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 is there a difference between direct and indirect taxes for uh, in cotillion no it's mostly direct tax okay uh, sorry indirect tax so on but sales there purchase. is uh, yeah it's on sales purchase but there is direct tax on cultivators on cultivators as in the agriculturalists <laughs> agriculturists their uh, a share of uh, whatever the king gets a share of what is grown a tith yeah is that is that what it's called uh, i'm not tith okay. uh, i'm not certain whether that was what a tith was okay. but it certainly is the case that the king has a share of what the uh, of is Fair. grown on his lands fair tell me economically was and i've understood a little bit right with infrastructure development and limited state with some economic incentives it sounds like a classic capitalist like it sounds like an adam smithian sort of approach to things yes although he may not have he did not probably have a conception of distribution of resources based on an invisible um hand hand yeah right so i don't think he was thinking in efficiency terms right he was merely reflecting how business is done in those times hmm. india has always been a very capitalist society in that sense there's a way the merchants have existed from you know harappan times bronze age and yeah, so on yeah we've been trading we've been trading throughout so right. he he takes it as given that uh, a merchant based system is what 
uh, artisans and merchants are key to the economy. Right. They need infrastructure, but they also need to be regulated. Hmm. So he's very much clear that you know there are rules, metrology rules about weights, measures, mm. uh, rules about what happens if somebody cheats. Okay. He has rules about um, lending uh, and what is considered a reasonable uh, rate, interest interest right. rate. Hmm. Uh, what happens if somebody uh, defaults? Okay. Uh, and so on. Who is supposed to pay if sub- default? What happens? And so on. So there is a whole bunch of things that he talks about. What happens to inheritance? Hmm. What happens if somebody goes away and disappears? Can uh, after how much time can the inheritors uh, claim it? Inheritors claim it, or uh, even a wife uh, can remarry. Okay. So you know there are all yes. kinds of many other things that are there in, and you can see his thinking process mostly quite pragmatic. Hmm. Uh, once you accept his realist. Uh, frame of frame reference. of reference. Yes, he's basically pragmatic. So he has traffic rules. Right. So he has rules about what happens uh, if um, you know a bullock cart misbehaves. Hmm. Uh, then you know very small children are not allowed to run a bullock cart. So there's a age cutoff. <laughs> what happens if the yeah you know that's so funny. All kinds. You're not allowed to drive a bullock cart drunk. <laughs> like that's yeah, yeah stuff like that. Right. You know, so he has these kinds of rules. I mean, I don't know if he has that specific rule. Yeah, right. But it would be quite in character for him to have these kinds of rules, and then specifically say so many coins, copper coins, panas, or whatever have to be paid if this. Huh. Uh, if he does drunk driving, very interesting. Uh, you know, I mean, as I said, drunk I riding in that uh, drunk case. driving or whatever. <laughs> so he has all these kinds of rules, fines for hmm. doing blah blah blah. Hmm. You know, there is a very colloquial notion of uh, sam dam dand bhed, which is what sort of you know emerges in pop culture from Chanakya and probably from Arthashastra. How do you see its validity today, as far as? the state's role is concerned because so this is not the part of the state's role mm. he gets into this kind of thing when he gets into the king's what should the king think of in terms of retaining power mm. and in that context he does bring out the fact that you know you have to have spies you, you know you, you need to have you have to be willing to send out uh, uh, you know, if necessary, you have to use assassins sometimes. Mm. So that is the that is where the Machiavellian part comes in. It's ah, a very small part, by the way, of the Arthashastra. Mm. Uh, it's a part of his being a realist. You know, in every modern state, also has departments of uh, you know, you know, CIA, yeah, FBI, yeah, 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 and all yeah, this yeah, kind of thing. Right. So he also has that, but that's not the uh, starting point of his thinking. Right. And that is why I think it's quite unfair to just make him like a Machiavelli. He's not a Machiavelli at all. Yeah, I think uh, I think the sort of public Indian mind is so moralist in its initial conception that the reality of what he's saying strikes us as like, Achha, like you know, he has this whole Sam Nam Dandabhed model to... to yeah, think. he brings that up in, 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 in the context of the what is being done. Right. Uh, so you need to have an intelligence agency and the intelligence agency does these kinds of things. Right, right. right. So <laughs> it's that is the context in which he... Or he also talked about warfare and, and uh, you know, the kinds of formations that you should have for going to battle in that context. He also talks about you know, surprise as a... Yeah, uh, there is a moment of Troy kind of a situation. So that he, he talks has. about all of this. So, you know, so that's about warfare. Right. So in that context, of course, uh, you know, surprise attacks are an important part of right, the right, right. toolkit. I think the story goes, He there is a fight they're having. I think it's, this is on the rise of Chandragupta. And he goes to the kingdom and says that if you stop burning these candles, the 
enemy will retreat and and as soon as this so look there are many legends yeah, like yeah, this yeah, they are yeah, not yeah, yeah. these legends are not there in the arthashastra itself fair fair fair, fair so fair. they may be stories which actually happened or they may just be apocryphal stories that are attached to him later on we don't know fair they are not there in the actual text okay as 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 an epilogue to what we've come to sort of speak about um i want to understand what happens to chanakya's thought because he as a co-founder of one of the greatest empires um and with him chandragupt his son bindusara seems to have continued it but it seems to die down with ashoka and we were just speaking right before we switched on the cameras about how you see ashoka as the anti chanakya yes which is not how ashoka the great and the ashok chakra and all these things come to be understood in my history absolutely book. so people do need to understand that ashoka violates pretty much everything that chanakya stood for hmm so first of all ashoka by the way comes to power um by usurping the throne and killing all his brothers hmm. having come to power he then converts to buddhism we don't know exactly why but my own sense is that because there were all these other ajivikas and jains and others in it so there must have been various factions he was from the buddhist faction and so very early on in his uh, as after becoming king he becomes a buddhist the, the this happens at least 4 years before this uh, in that his invasion of kalinga which is the famous yes yeah right this whole business of him converting after seeing the uh, dead bodies dead bodies right. in in uh, kalinga is completely made up there is no evidence of this at all hmm. um <clears throat> so the the evidence is very clear that 4 years before this invasion he was already a buddhist now he carries out the invasion of buddha of of uh, kalinga etc but also important to know that there is no evidence of him becoming a pacifist either after the kalinga war he in the inscription that is very often quoted about his pacifism he basically says that look i invaded kalinga i killed so many people i did all these bad things i am feeling sorry but but the, the very next line he says if you forest tribes behave badly i will do the same thing to you and then feel sorry again <laughs> yeah so the point is it's a threat <laughs> right. if you read the full inscription it's clearly a threat okay. and there are many texts including sri lankan buddhist texts which clearly mention that well uh, well into his rule he was carrying out massacres of ajivikas and and jains and others as well so mm-hmm. there is enough evidence of him doing that but that is not just what i want to talk about as right. far as the the issue of principles is concerned right ashoka was very much about expanding the state so an expansionist he was yeah the st- of the powers of the state so okay. i talked about a limit not not the borders of his state hmm. which already he had basically inherited right. even even kalinga by the way was almost certainly a rebellious province okay okay he he didn't actually conquer it hmm. Uh, a fresh hmm. now the expansion of the role of the state is what ashoka's uh, contribution is fair so the powers of the state yes right. so you read ashoka he talks about how you know he wants his rajukas his dharma mahamantas to go out there and basically it's all about very much uh, my bab sarkar achha, and he achha. literally describes it so he says just like my uh, just like a Uh, parent hands over the, his his or a baby to a, a wet nurse in the same way i i am handing over my people to the care of my officials like the bureaucratic officials like bureaucratic officials achha, including achha. the dharma mahamantas who basically are religious police okay okay hmm. now he has all these very interfering kinds of rules which would be anathema to kautilya hmm. so for example he'll say you know on the first day of tissa and the fourth day of chaturmasi we should not castrate uh, animals and so on 
I mean, I really don't think the bull cared on which day he was castrated. Right. And so Chanakya would have been horrified by all of this. We have thought of this as, you know, unnecessary rules. Right, right, right. Because right. his rules are very realist rules. Mm-hmm. Ah, so all this, all this kind of... Uh, excessive, excessive uh, superstitious rules. Being yeah, yeah, all this kind of soft stuff he anyway thinks is fishy. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's like, leave it to the people. Leave it to the people. And anyway, you are extending the... You're allowing free... Uh, range to officials. You've got to be kidding me. These fellows are the uh, problem. The, the problem. Yes, 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 yes. So, yes. so Ashoka expands and lets basically this hugely expansionist, interventionist state. Hmm. And so you end up with basically. Uh, meanwhile, obviously, all of this requires fiscal expansion. So what happens? And we know that by the time you are well into the second half of uh, Ashoka's rule. There is massive uh, fiscal stress on the system. Hmm. And so you have this increasingly weak but overextended state. Hmm. And ultimately, by the time Ashoka dies, the Mauryan Empire collapses. So it is important to remember that the Mauryan Empire collapsed while Ashoka was alive. Hmm. Is it said otherwise? Historically, is it known otherwise? Yes, it is very well known. But very often when we are saying Ashoka the Great, do remember what Ashoka is doing. He did not create the empire. He inherited it. And that's what he usurped it. Yes, right. Yeah. And then he overextends the state. And in his own lifetime, that state, that empire collapses. Hmm. So I have always found it bizarre that Ashoka is considered the great. If anyone, in fact, in the Indian tradition, the idea of him being Ashoka the Great is completely modern. It's a it's a nine late it's a 19th but mostly 20th century idea mm-hmm. he was mostly forgotten in the indian tradition and to the extent he's remembered he's remembered as ashoka the cruel chanda ashoka mm. his the idea of him being a great is in other parts of the world where his missionaries etc went but those places had never dealt with him dealt, dealt with his rule right, right 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 in india itself there are not even buddhist texts that say that he was a great king okay okay and, uh, you know, the Puranas, etc. barely mention him as a ruler. But to the extent they mention him, in passing, he is basically mentioned as Chanda Ashoka. But then, why is there an official, like, the flag right behind you? Yes. Is, I, 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 if I'm not wrong, there the chakra in the middle is the Ashoka chakra. So, this is something we need to have a discussion about. Okay. So, first of all, you have to know that in the early part of the 20th century, there was this whole idea of this socialist, welfareist state, Fair. pacifism from Gandhi, etc. Now, all of them wanted to create uh, wanted to create an ancient lineage for themselves. Fair. Now, the problem is that Chanakya doesn't provide you this. No. Nor does subsequent rulers. No. Not, you know, Shivaji clearly doesn't provide you this. Right. Um, Prithviraj Chauhan doesn't. Prithviraj Chauhan doesn't. Uh, Krishna Devaraya doesn't. Right. So they grabbed on to this king called Ashoka, who had just been recently rediscovered by the British uh, um, historians. historians, particularly actually a East India Company official called hmm. Prince hmm. But anyway, so they latched on to this guy. His inscriptions had just been uh, discovered, discovered, rediscovered. And it had a few lines here and there which suggested that he was much into this uh, pacifism type thing. Hmm. So they took that. They took into also like the fact that he had all this very expansionist, uh, this you know, my bab sarkar attitude, mm-hmm. which of course fitted in well with the Nehruvian socialism. Right. So therefore, you you created this Ashoka the Great as a sort of a as of origin intellectual point, father to an intellectual world. father to this whole thing, okay. to this project. So he then was created as the Great Ashoka. 
Huh. And then so it's a purely 20th century phenomenon. Huh. And then you basically twisted his history to talk about his conversion to uh, Buddhism etc. All of this is garbage. This is uh-huh. no evidence of this. Okay. In fact the evidence is clear that he was a Buddhist before this in, in, invasion. Huh. And so then he becomes this great important person. And so his symbols are then taken on to becoming the symbols of the state etc. Now having despite my somewhat suspicion of Ashoka I however think inadvertently they did the right thing ha huh. so let me explain why you see the wheel and the chakra is not ashoka's ch- uh, uh, we call it the ashoka chakra but chak- the symbol of the wheel as a symbol of the state predates ashoka it's the dharma chakra it is the dharma chakra but the raj dharma chakra ha huh. it is nothing to do with buddhism ha huh. so let me understand this the indian state the concept of the universal monarch is that of the chakravartin right yes chakravartin samrat bilkul goes bilkul. back all the way to the rigveda to you know the first uh, chakravartin who was sudasa the, mm. the, the chieftain of the bharata tribe after whom our kingdom is named right subsequently there are many the, the raja bharat and many others who do uh, they fall uh, under the chakravartin category yeah they become chakravartin what is their symbol their symbol is the wheel ah. so there are many all great emperors would have the wheel as a symbol even the guptas have the wheel right okay and this is a symbol of royalty so the buddhists use it because buddha in the spiritual realm is the universal monarch hmm. that is he is the chakravartin in the spiritual realm so that, so the buddhists are using the symbol as well but they are also appropriating a pre-existing symbol right okay right now think about what is going on here you go to sarnath why sarnath important because the two most important highways of that time the uttarapath and the dakshinapath cross here mm-hmm. so it was a highway crossing mm-hmm. now imagine the scene you have a huge pillar with these growling lions looking down at you with the symbols of the wheel nothing to do with buddhism this is about the power of the state mm. okay whether it's ashoka it may even have been put up by bindusara or even by chandragupta chandragupta fall we know but what are the mauryans saying i at at the crossroads of the two most hi- important highways i have these growling lions looking down of you they are basically in four directions the chakravartin's power watches everything everywhere yes. right, right right that is what is the symbol of the state is the symbol of the power of the state mm. okay we have converted into this fuzzy wuzzy you know some buddhist type thing it is mm. not okay very interesting so it has and then it has the chakra Ah. the symbol of the state mm. the lions growling at you from above big ones i mean if please go to uh, if you go to sarna these are not small it's not a small thing it's a pretty large monumental monumental thing on top of a of a of, of a, a tower of, pillar of a, of a pillar right. looking down at you and where would you put it you would put it at the place where the two uh, the biggest crossroad in your uh, of highways uh, of that time right right so this mm. is what it is so it is a symbol of the power of the state Hmm. so whether consciously or unconsciously we did the right thing we <laughs> took on i think it's a symbol of the state after right. what is the state what is the republic you know a state is the power of the state is that it has monopoly over violence right this is max weber yeah that yes. is what a state is right so that's what it is mm-hmm. 
you know in the vipassana tradition they they actually talk about this and so when i was first introduced i thought why is there an ashoka chakra here but they talk about it as the dharma chakra or the dhamma chakra it is not the dharma chakra at all uh-huh. it is the raj dharma chakra fair okay fair. Uh-huh. this is the and by the way this symbol is there also in the if you go and look at gupta sites hmm. you will also find it hmm. right and it's so symbolic of the dharmic sort of tradition of things where time is circular and you know the yes. karma and dharma is circular as but it is also a symbol of the chariot of the chakravartin who can drive his chariot in any direction That's so interesting from bhagavan spirituality yeah right? and so so the kharavela who is the odia king hmm. who destroyed the mughal uh, of the mauryan empire when kharavel comes to power he conducts the, he also conducts the rajasuya yagya hmm. and declares himself the chakravartin right isn't the the ashwamedh yagya also in yeah yeah they are basically the, they are the both to declare the uh, chakravartin right one of them involves the horse going around etc and the rajasuya is a fire uh, yeah it's a fire sacrifice so right. both of them are basically ways of declaring yourself as chakravartin interesting so and it is all and the symbol of the person who successfully carries out the uh, the the this this process, enterprise yes enterprise right. it then becomes the the chakravartin chakravartin samrat the chakravartin samrat then is a universal monarch because his chariot can drive in any direction and nobody can interrupt and nobody can interrupt it right. so this is the chakravartin Fair. so it is therefore the symbol of the state hmm. and so when the buddhists come remember what happens with buddha when he is he is very small a rishi comes and says this child will definitely become a chakravartin hmm. but he may become a chakravartin in the spiritual spiritual sense, sense or as a great conqueror right and his father basically wants him to be a great conqueror so <clears throat> you see but he becomes in the spiritual space but he is a universal monarch mm. in that space right right so, right, right, right but what are the what therefore what are the buddhists doing there already is a conception of a universal monarch whose right. symbol is the chakravartin and they are appropriating it right very interesting and in modern times we instinctively understand what it is yes. so even though we do it for the wrong reason which is ashoka etc uh, we, we actually latch on to we, the right we latch on to the correct symbol symbol right which is that there are these growling lions looking down at us hmm. so you know uh, again one of the funny and almost hilarious things we do is that in this sort of pursuit of so called Uh, we discover that these growling lions aren't too peaceful hmm. and kind of violates our self image right so in the nehruvian period if you look at buildings built in the 50s 60s 70s uh, including for example the uh, lions on top of um, the uh, vidhan sauda in uh, in bangalore bengaluru uh-huh. for karnataka's legislative assembly right right the uh, lions mouth is shut so they stop them from growling because they're not peaceful enough right okay, very interesting how that works now. yeah yeah so therefore now what happens is now we build a new thing we got them to back back to growling because we are back <laughs> we right? are like we're back in that flavor <laughs> one last question sir and then i'll leave you to it um intellectually i already understand kamandak sort of takes chanakya forward yes what is the intellectual lineage from there if there is any so this is very interesting so you know we tend to think of kautilya is you know this isolated yeah yeah no kautilya is already by the time he arrives in the scene there is a well developed as i pointed out hmm. uh, thought and schools of thought from rihaspati shukra shukra manu others as well he mentions a few more now this tradition continues so the mauryan empire goes but the fascination with the mauryas remain hmm. ah so the 
and one of those who are most fascinated with it is of course the guptas they also create an empire hmm. ah samudra gupta goes and sort of uh, goes all the way to the southern tip he defeats uh, just like the they had defeated the yavanas the greeks uh, they are defeating the descendants of the greeks the indo greeks the bactrians the sucks and suckers right, right, so right, right, right. so they they see themselves in the same light hmm. and so you have plays like the mudra rakshas where they talk about how caught uh, how chanakya won the throne from the nandas right so you know uh, three of the kings of the guptas are called chandragupta so they are fascinated by the mauryas right and uh, they you know in the same tradition you also have kamandak who is the philosopher of the uh, guptas right. and so in he starts by saying that how much he admires chanakya Hmm. So many of his thoughts he puts down. Although I personally think Kamandak is not of the same caliber as Chanakya, Chanakya, hmm. but still he takes many of the same ideas, updates them in various ways to his times. Mm-hmm. Uh, he changes. I mean, there is obviously, for example, he talks about military strategies, and you can see the military strategies have changed over six hundred years, right, 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 and so on and so forth. And uh, so you can clearly see the continuation, and you see in many other places also uh, there is mention of Chanakya. Hmm. now these ideas remain floating around so in even in the maratha empire there's a fascination with chanakya hmm. uh, so there there is always you know there, there are traditions of thought that are still around hmm. but they are slowly kind of getting diluted and original copies of his um, of uh, of arthashastra hmm. are becoming fewer and fewer and in the 19th century it's believed that they have been completely lost okay. so he is only known from the fact that there are all these legends about it but there is no arthashastra then one copy is found in the mysore library ha huh. okay about 100 years ago hmm. and from that of course later on a few more were found but okay. one proper copy was found and from that we begin to then rediscover the the tradition yeah so now other copies have been found etc some better than others right and but the, the 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 main one that is still the one that is used is the one that was found in the mysore library so it so the whole thing was nearly lost hmm. uh but the important thing here is and sad i would say there are actually lacks and lacks of um uh, of palm leaf documents and manuscripts written in sanskrit and also other languages indian languages that have not been translated so it is entirely possible mm. that somewhere in the country there are other texts on governance etc that exist it is very sad that both from because of lack of epigraphy lack of hard work whatever it may be so if there are uh, translators scholars, translators scholars etc please go there contact the national uh, archives man, ma- manuscript mission uh, there are lots and lots of documents out there for young scholars to engage with and literally lacks of documents which have we have no idea what is in there so there may wow. be huge amounts of knowledge that is just lying around i knew there were some intranslatable documents no no there are no. lots of them and you know some of it requires effort because they are in scripts that are not widely used but somebody has to put in that effort after right. all i mean to be fair to the british even if they were dis- digging up our history f- to twist it for their own good good right for their own reasons they put in an effort right and during their rule there were scholars who did do original work mm-hmm. but after independence this was all discouraged 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 not discontinued no not just discontinued discouraged because so you had well there were well many things one of them is this 
embarrassment with india's past of interesting ah, so huh. in, if, so you see for example you have great archaeologists like bb lal in the 50s and 60s they do a lot of interesting digs ha uh-huh. uh, for example in epic ramayan mahabharat related sites hmm. and then it is all stopped by the 70s no more hmm uh, our entire um, you know uh, history uh, sort of archaeology manuscripts etc all of this kind of stalls interesting and it is surprising that till my colleague bibek debroy began to really do many of these afresh from an indian perspective of you know translating uh, mahabharat ramayan etc much of what had been done was 100 years old wow so and that by the british done under british rule not right. necessarily by, by the, the british right fair you had manmat nath datta and all these people uh, but you know it happened under british rule hmm. and it oh, then it stalled for the you know half a century or more under under in post independence india hmm. it's only in the last decade or so there has been this new resurgence of interest right. but i want to tell young people who are there there is so much out there that left to dig even for amateurs where okay wow. e- even if you are you know one of those people who has learned sanskrit in college like a reddit historian uh, yeah and, right. and, and 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 but you're willing to take it up seriously and learn you know the script and so on there are lots of documents even on um, you can get a lot of them have been digitized they're online pick them up begin to do your research you'll be amazed how much information is there which we have no idea about literally lacks of such documents a civilization waiting to be discovered absolutely right okay sir thank you so much for your time as always it is such a pleasure thank you so thank much thank you so much